so often we think, oh, everything's wrong. There's so much that's broken. We're not making progress. But the reality is we're not broken. We're just unfinished. There's still things we need to learn how to do to work, play, and thrive with people that are different from us. We're still learning. This is a learning journey. So we're not broken. We're just unfinished. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 351, which features a conversation with Melissa Majors. Melissa is a keynote speaker, author of The Seven Simple Habits of Inclusive Leaders, and founder of Melissa Majors Consulting, where she helps leaders lead better and cultivate high-performing and engaged teams. Prior to starting her consulting practice, Melissa spent 20 years leading education services teams and divisions across a variety of industries, both large and small. Salisa and Melissa talk about what inclusive leadership is, its benefits, psychological safety, tactical empathy, and focusing on desired behaviors rather than leading with labels to get around DEI fatigue. They also talk about how to be inclusive in product design and development. Throughout the conversation, which took place in March 2023, Melissa's optimism and joy come sparkling through. Inclusive leadership is a focus for you. So maybe we should just go ahead and hear near the beginning of our conversation, have you explain what inclusive leadership is. Yeah, happy to do that. So I mentioned my secret sauce over the many years that I've had managing high-performing teams. Before I had a label, I was inclusive. Everybody felt they belonged. They all felt like they could lean in, take risks without retaliation. We were really great at transforming conflict, not shying away from it. And so I wanted to know beyond my own experience, what were other leaders doing to involve others equally. That's my definition for inclusion, involving others equally. And so I launched a series of research to find out what were other leaders doing and discover they have shared behaviors that fall into like seven different categories, which I cover in my book, The Seven Simple Habits of Inclusive Leaders. But what I discovered is that so oftentimes we unintentionally exclude people our brains get in the way, our natural wiring, our outdated wiring of our brains get in the way and we unintentionally exclude people. And so, you know, like snap judgments that we make about people and in, in, in nanosecond, your brain will assess whether somebody is a friend or a foe. And an example of that is how that gets in the way is we prefer familiarity. Like our brain doesn't have to work as hard to assess whether you're a potential threat if you seem familiar and similar to me. And so oftentimes our brain can mislead us into misjudging people's character. And that certainly is a hindrance then to leading people equally. And so those are the, some of the things that I use to describe and overcome, mitigate those risks related to inclusive leadership. So that's the what, what inclusive leadership is. And now I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why we should focus on inclusive leadership. What are the benefits of leading inclusively? Yeah, that's such a good question, Salisa. Why should we do it? Well, based on my research, I discovered that the most inclusive leaders recognize that being inclusive is so much more than a moral obligation. It truly is a business imperative. 
And there's research by McKinsey and Company that came out a couple of years ago, and it just continues to be validated by other big research firms, Gartners and others, that the most inclusive companies are outperforming the least inclusive ones with 49% higher profitability. Like who can afford to leave that kind of competitive advantage on the table? And more about the why is those, those teams are not just higher performing in terms of financial performance, they have higher engagement, they have better retention, they're much better at mitigating risk and uncovering risk to ideas and decisions and solutions. They're more innovative as a result of being more inclusive. And so there is a clear bottom line benefit when we do this well. And so given those benefits that all would make a strong case for inclusive leadership, what are the barriers? What are the challenges? Why isn't inclusive leadership practiced more broadly? That's another great question. So again, going back to the research that I I did, 80% of C-suite leaders that I interviewed recognize and acknowledge that they're missing the mark related to being inclusive and don't know what to do about it. Like they, especially during 2020, there was a huge racial reckoning here in the United States and, and around the world, if you will. And there were leaders just running to their closest web designer to post statements and packs there. They commit to being more inclusive, but they didn't know how to operationalize inclusion beyond that, that goal and that commitment. And so oftentimes though that commitment fizzled out without habits, which is why I think having habits is so important. So number one, establishing sustainable change through habits is one of the biggest barriers to operationalizing inclusion. Our brains are the even bigger challenge. As I mentioned earlier, our brains get in the way. And so often we unintentionally exclude people. It's easier to empathize with people who are more similar to us than different. And so understanding how you can overcome some of that natural wiring to empathize with all people and listen to perspectives that are different from your own. And that's really, really important. I think one of the other challenges is convincing leaders why it's necessary. There are a lot of practitioners in the DEI space and companies that position the why based on social justice and morality. And this is not popular, what I'm about to say, but it's true that whenever companies commit to something based on a moral need, they set themselves up for inaction and eventually deprioritization because ultimately the company has to thrive from a financial perspective and they deprioritize things that don't drive financial health. When you can create a case for diversity, equity, and inclusion that's based on what matters most to the company in terms of financial health and cultural health, those those solutions or those initiatives are sustainable, whereas the others start to fizzle out. And that's what we're seeing now, you know, in our times as we're starting to see downward pressure on the case for DEI. So long story short, it's really important that we align the business case and the why to what matters most to the company. That makes a lot of sense. So that There may be the moral and the ethical reasons to do it, but also making sure that you're making that business case about DEI initiatives and inclusive leadership. We're grateful to Thinkific for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. As a Leading Learning listener, you know the importance we place on reach, revenue, and impact for learning businesses. Thinkific Plus is a new generation platform purpose-built to help growing businesses scale revenue. 
With Thinkific Plus, you can generate monthly recurring revenue through course subscriptions and membership programs. Sell multiple seats for your learning products to a single buyer. Suggest additional products in the learning flow to increase sales. And go global with 0% transaction fees and payments accepted in over 100 countries. As one quick example, entrepreneur and business coach Ellie Diop uses Thinkific Plus for her Ellie Talks Money Academy. She's generated over seven figures in revenue and nearly 50,000 people purchased courses in her first year alone. Right now, Thinkific Plus is offering Leading Learning listeners one month free for a limited time. But that offer is only available if you go to our special URL. So go to thinkific.com slash learning to learn more and try out the platform. That's thinkific.com slash learning. One of the things that I've seen you write about that I would love to hear you talk about a little bit too is this idea of blameless inclusion. Can you speak to that a little bit about, I guess, maybe some of the sort of the psychological or emotional things that inclusion can bring up in, in people? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you a story to answer the question. A couple months back, I was about to deliver my signature speech on the book, The Seven Simple Habits of Inclusive Leaders. And after the session, a woman walks up to me and she says, you proved me wrong. I expected to feel attacked when I walked in this room. I expected for you to make me feel ashamed of who I am as a person and how I've and my beliefs, and you did not. And as a result of that approach, I'm much more open-minded and I'm going to apply these concepts and tactics. So really what I do and what other DEI practitioners do is we're negotiating behavior change. I wouldn't just say DEI, anybody on this call that's interested in education, if you're educating people, you're in the business of negotiating behavior change. And in any negotiation, if you cause people to feel defensive, you've lost, you've shut them down. They're not going to be open to the concepts. So by design, I approach inclusion from a blameless, guilt-free perspective. I blame the brain, not people. And it opens people's minds, like the woman in the story that I just shared, to lean into these concepts and apply the tactics. And so you've mentioned the brain and blaming the brain to the yeah, extent yeah. that there is any blame to, to go around. And I think that probably ties to, to bias, but will you talk a little bit about bias, what it is and kind of how it relates to inclusion? I know you talked a little bit about familiarity and, and some of those things, but maybe dig in a little bit more on, on bias. Yeah. Oh, bias is such a bad, what's poorly branded. So <laughs> biases, you know, they're just a natural threat detection mechanism in all of our brains. We all have biases. So we think we're so much more sophisticated than we are, Salisa, but our brains have not evolved that much since we were hanging out in caves. Like we're still very much wired for survival and reproduction. And biases become shortcuts based on inputs you've had throughout your entire life that tell your brain, I already know based on patterns, I already know this is not a threat. I don't have to spend the time assessing a threat. And it works really well for inanimate objects. So when you walk in a room and you see an object that has a flat top and four legs, your brain says, I don't need to take the energy and time to assess that. It's a table. It's not a threat. But when you walk in a room and you see other people, your brain has to work even harder. Because as I mentioned earlier, it will assess whether somebody is a friend or a foe. And those biases... Again, those threat detection mechanisms in our brain 
those biases can lead us to make uninformed or mis misjudgments about other people. But what I discovered about the most inclusive leaders is they embrace their bias, which is hard to do because saying, hi, I'm biased is like saying, hi, I'm a bigot or I'm a homophobe or a racist or something like that. But they embrace their bias, label them, and then they can work even harder to compensate for those biases so they don't seep out in interactions with other people, especially in leading teams. So what I encourage your listeners to do is try to uncover their biases. And I have resources that I can share on that, but try to uncover your biases and then you can compensate for them, but you have to embrace and acknowledge they exist first. You just mentioned our listeners. I am thinking about our listeners and thinking about their role in designing and developing educational offerings. And so there's of course an opportunity to directly teach about diversity, equity, inclusion, have that sort of be the, the subject matter and the focus of a particular learning experience. But I also see the opportunity for indirect opportunities to sort of bake some DEI concepts into some, if not all of the learning experiences. So I would love to hear your advice for how that might happen. How can we sort of bake more diversity, equity, and inclusion into everything that we're offering as a learning business? Well, first I would suggest lead with the behavior you want and not the label of DE&I. Unfortunately, there's DE&I fatigue with that term. And so many people shut down when they hear that term. But if you get rid of the label and just focus on the behaviors, like empathizing with people who are different from you, think about any education designer. What's the number one thing that you do? You first start with it when you're building an education product. You empathize with the people you serve whether you need to design thinking, needs assessments, whatever. You have to empathize with the people that you serve. And part of that is intentionally identifying the people you serve, deeply listening to their needs, and build that insight into building relevant products and services. That's inclusion. So often, those of us in education services who are building products and services, we may not involve enough diverse voices at the table and then we build products that miss the mark or may be irrelevant for part of the demographic that we serve. So be inclusive. Think about what are our blind spots as designers and product developers, and what voices do we need to invite to table so that we have that full perspective. So that's just a little bit about what that is, the case for it in terms of education, design, and development, but focus on the behaviors instead of leading with the labels. I like that advice a lot. And it seems, of course, to apply across the board to all situations. And it's that learner-centric view of design, which, as you said, really is sort of at the heart of, of what we know about best practices for how to create effective learning experiences. Can I follow up and give you a story that I just heard? Her name is Karen Townsend. She's an incredible practitioner and leadership expert. She gave me this example just yesterday. And it's just really simple and profound around inclusion and in design. And she said 10 years ago or so, she would go into a, a card shop to buy a birthday card for her mom. And she would scan the cards and she wouldn't see any pictures of moms that look like her mom. She's an African-American woman. Until Hallmark came out with a line of cards called Mahogany. And now she can walk into a store and buy a birthday card with a picture of a mom that actually looks like her mom. And what Hallmark discovered originally is they probably had product designers around the table that had a singular perspective. They were thinking about their mom and the design of these birthday cards, and that came out in the design of products. And they were excluding big 
demographics and revenue generating opportunities with audience they hadn't tapped into before. So now you go on a Hallmark store, you can buy cards for Yom Kippur and Diwali and all sorts of cards that represent your life. And yes, the Hallmark company may have done this originally from a moral and social justice perspective in the product design. They also discovered there are revenue generating opportunities by being more inclusive in the design process. So I think that's just a really simple and profound story that anyone, whether you're designing education products or technology, can really wrap their minds around the case and the how to be inclusive in product design. I have a question about thinking about the different segments of the audiences that a learning business might serve. And so some of them are going to represent different demographics, different point of views. So to what extent does messaging need to be different for different groups? I mean, if you have sort of some of the historically under-included groups and you have some of the groups who maybe have been part of those doing the excluding of those under-included groups, can the same messaging work for both both those groups or groups all along those spectrums? Or at times, do we need more nuanced and targeted messages for different groups? Where I have seen, it's a really great question, Salisa, where I have seen most, a lot of U.S.-based education services companies fumble in this area is in delivering global education. Because we have a U.S.-centric mindset The product designers are probably based in the U.S. And it's so often it's easy for us to overlook the needs and the localization requirements for global companies. I mean, even just as simple as the time when we deliver virtual education, is it time zone friendly for everyone? Or are we unintentionally prioritizing our comfort and convenience to host them during U.S.-based hours? and cause our other learners around the world to dial in in the middle of the night or crack a dawn in the morning. You know, simple little decisions like that. But if you don't have those voices at the table informing those decisions, it's really easy to overlook those opportunities and then underserve the people you should be serving equally. Another sort of follow-up question that I have around how we can best make our education offerings inclusive has to do with the role of instructors and facilitators. So I'm thinking of instructor-led things, whether that's online or physical classroom type situations. They're often either experts in a particular subject or they're experts in facilitation itself. But it seems to me that they also have a huge role to play in how inclusive that situation is. And so I guess any thoughts around sort of how to best prepare our facilitators and instructors to help them be as aware of and inclusive as possible. Absolutely. So it's important for us all to recognize our blind spots. I'll tell you a story. Last year, I was contracted to deliver education for a large audience in Italy. Now, these were all English speakers, right? It was their second language, of course. But I recognize my blind spots related to some of the challenges that are relevant in their workplaces. They have very different dynamics they're facing as opposed to most of the U.S. audiences that I deliver training to. So I recognized that blind spot and also said, 
I need to partner with someone in this situation. I need to partner with an Italian facilitator and instructor who can add relevant context and color to this content. And once we started working together, I realized I didn't need to be the one at the mic to deliver this education. And so I brought this Italian instructor on to add even more relevant stories and customize the workshop and the content so that we achieve the outcomes we needed to in that audience. So recognize your blind spots, your limits. And one of my favorite sayings is do what you do best, outsource the rest. So don't be afraid to ask for help from people who have that context and insight. That's a lovely example. Uh, And I want to talk a little bit about your book, which you've mentioned, The Seven Simple Habits of Inclusive Leaders. And I know that one of those habits you highlight is empathy. And you've also already focused on the need to sort of have habits and to get really practical about what inclusion looks like. So what does empathy look like in action? So I mentioned based on my research and neuroscience, advances in neuroscience, we know it's harder to empathize with people we see as of them versus an us. Our brain naturally prefers familiarity. So leaders have to work even harder to empathize across difference. And so I love Chris Voss, his definition of empathy. Chris Voss is the author of a book called Never Split the Difference. Highly recommend this read if you haven't. But he was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI for 25 years. So you go on vacation, Kalisa, and he, you get kidnapped. The bad guys take you away. Chris is the one they would send in to negotiate your way to safety. And Chris said his weapons-grade negotiation tactic is empathy, tactical empathy. And the definition is this, describing and demonstrating an understanding of the needs, interest, and perspective of others without necessarily agreeing. Without necessarily agreeing is the key. So often when we are attempting to empathize with others, we discount their perspective or we disagree or we get defensive. And what he says, with no defensiveness, no no arguments, just listen to understand, not to disagree. And so that is also how I recommend and teach and equip leaders to be even more empathetic is with that definition and reminding them you're not sympathizing. You're empathizing. You don't have to agree. You just have to understand. And what I love about the focus on empathy is that it does seem like empathy contributes to psychological safety. And we know how important psychological safety is to learning that if a learner feels like they can really engage and participate fully, that's going to lead to more learning coming out of that experience. So I think that emphasis on empathy works from the leadership perspective, but also from the learning perspective as well. Absolutely, it does. You know, step one is empathizing with people that you, that need to consume the content and build relevant products and experiences, and then give them choice in how they want to consume it. Empathy is really the gateway to helping us understand not just what our learners need to learn, but how they need to consume it in a way where they can remember the information and apply it. Because if they can't remember and apply the content and the information we share, it was a big old fat waste of time. (laughs) And you solve for that through tactical empathy.
So this is the Leading Learning Podcast. So we always love to ask guests about their own lifelong learning habits. I think it's especially interesting with you, given your educational services background. So would you share with us what habits or practices or resources you tend to make use of to continue learning professionally and, and personally too? Absolutely. I am a terrible formal learning student. <laughs> you know, those that do, we are just terrible students. But I am an incredible informal learning student. And one question, I'm happy to share this with your audience, that has really helped me become an even better leader and educator is no matter the situation, whether it's I perceive it as good or bad, I ask, what is the lesson I should be learning in this moment? And even though it may feel disappointing to me, it pivots that experience into something that turns into wisdom for myself. And so whether it's an article I'm reading on online or a, a news uh, uh, cast or whatever the story is, I can glean wisdom from other people's experiences informally by asking, what is the lesson I should be learning in this moment? And so that has really helped me. I, I'm a, I love to read though. I am a big, big reader. And so I've got a couple books on my, my nightstand. That's usually what I do before I go to bed. And I like to stay on top of cutting edge and next pra next practices because I'm naturally wired as a strategist and innovator. So I love hearing about best practices and ways that we can continue and evolve and become even better through innovative leadership and education experiences. Are there any cutting edge topics that you're currently looking at that you would like to share? Anything that pops to mind? Yeah, yeah. There's um, toxicity in the workplace mm. and how to solve for that. Mm. Power dynamics in the workplace unintentional consequences of being in positions of power. I'm digging into that research. I'm working on my second book. This is the first time I've been mentioning that. So wow, yay, I won't say anything else about it, but those are some topics that I'm researching right now to inform how leaders can continue to thrive in this very complex environment and detox our teams and companies, if you will. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Anything that you haven't had a chance to share that you would love to have a, a chance to before we wrap up? I would like to share more around inclusive leadership and how it can solve so many of the, the issues that we're facing on our teams and our workplaces today, but it's getting a bad rep. And so there are a lot of organizations and companies that are deprioritizing this work because they just have not seen the returns they were expecting uh, there isn't a crisis in the headlines today that's causing a lot of organizations to deprioritize this work. But when we do it well, it not only leads to full team engagement, it can help retain the top performers you have on your teams by very simple human needs we have, belonging, social connection at work, being involved in key decisions, being treated fairly. Those are all experiences that when we get right, we retain great talent and achieve incredible results on our teams. But so many of us are getting that wrong right now. Mm -hmm. And so before you were deprioritized the inclusion work, really think about those behaviors and the benefits of it related to detoxing your teams. And if there's anything I can do to help call. I'm an open book. I love to share some of those concepts, but be careful 
not to deprioritize inclusion work too soon and then miss out on the incredible competitive and performance advantage that it offers. It seems to me too that inclusive leadership can also in a way be a form of self-care for the leader. I've seen you write about this idea of we as a leader you don't necessarily have to have all the answers and it can be really important and and freeing to admit that. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, as leaders, we unintentionally derive our value from feeling like we need to have all the answers and be the most, the smartest person in the room. And that actually shuts people down. And then as employees who ladder up to leaders, we expect those leaders to have all of the answers. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Nobody has all the answers. But if you work really well together and mitigate that that misconception, the power dynamics in that relationship, you get everybody leaning in to share their ideas. And it's at the intersection of all those diverse ideas coming together where the incredible decisions are made, but we, we unplug when it gets uncomfortable. So that's, that's, those are some concepts that I, I try to help teams with and through is labeling what appears to be uncomfortable conversations. It's actually part of the process. And that takes the sting and stress out of it when you're able to do that and does lead to more self-care. And you feel better when you've got teams of people that are happy and thriving you feel better as a leader. So there are there are ways that we can do this even better. And I'm a big believer that inclusive leadership concepts and topics are an incredible method to get there. So there's one also last piece of advice I'd like to give your audience, and that is to reframe their thinking around inclusion. So often we think, Oh, everything's wrong. There's so much that's broken. We're not making progress. But the reality is we're not broken. We're just unfinished. There's still things we need to learn how to do to work, play, and thrive with people that are different from us. We're still learning. This is a learning journey. So we're not broken. We're just unfinished. Melissa Majors is the author of The Seven Simple Habits of Inclusive Leaders, a keynote speaker and the founder of Melissa Majors Consulting. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 351, you'll find a link to Melissa's profile on LinkedIn and to her website, which features a variety of free resources around inclusive leadership topics. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Jeff and I would personally appreciate it, and it doesn't take much time. Plus, those ratings help others find the show. Go to leadinglearning.com apple to leave a rating. And please spread the word about Leading Learning. You can do that in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague or a personal note, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 351, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.